This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E, dot com, and enter the promo code FOOL75. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, April 22nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's show, we've got some earnings to get to. We're going to answer a listener email. We'll tap into Twitter. As always, we've got one to watch. But we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. For more than 13 years, Gunther Bright has been working for American Express, managing everything from global clients to co-branded partnerships. Today, Gunther is the Executive Vice President of U.S. Merchant Services with American Express. And recently, our own Matt Frankel chatted with Gunther about the steps that American Express has taken to become more universally accepted and more merchant-friendly and the current and future state of the payment processing business. Gunther, the reason that you guys really landed on our radar for this podcast is that Amex pointed out that they not only have brought fees down for merchants in recent years, but they're much more universally accepted. So personally, I carry an Amex in my wallet. I've noticed that I don't have to pull out my backup credit card in as many places as I did a few years ago. Amex is definitely more universally accepted. So how how has Amex addressed the problem of universal acceptance? And just how much more has it become? Yeah, Matt. So I'm glad, glad you're having a better uh card member experience at the point of sale in the merchants. That's intentional. Um, so it's a few things. This uh, At a high level, you asked the question, how many more merchants are accepted? Over the last two years, three million incremental merchants are accepting the American Express card in the U.S. Uh, and so what we did is address, when we were thinking about the gap of acceptance, we really had a uh, focus our attention on small merchants, which make up the majority of our merchants in the U.S. And there were two things that we really uh, tried to identify in terms of pain points. One was the ease of acceptance, and the next one was price. Let me talk about ease of acceptance. It was really uh, the experience for these small merchants before, if they wanted to accept uh, American Express, they had to have one process of acceptance and enablement for other networks and a different one for uh, American Express, which made it clunky, which made it difficult, which wasn't efficient. And if you think about a small merchant, that is more work added to the process, which they they didn't have and don't have the infrastructure and the capabilities for that. So we really wanted to make it where a processor had the ability to set up American Express, at the same time, they're setting up other networks. And that has been extraordinarily helpful in accelerating our coverage and reducing the gap that you had experienced uh, years past. The next one was price, really making sure, which is a pay, was a pain point for small merchants. And so what we did is really better understand and revisit the price that we were charging merchants and make sure that it was commensurate with the value that we were delivering. Uh, and that value is it's based on the price is based on the industry, it's based on how much spend goes there, et cetera. But really making sure that um, the price was set and we have that price established. And now at the point of uh, the processor that I mentioned, they actually set the ultimate price for the merchant, but we 
gave that processor a certain rate, again, based on the industry and the value. So those two things, ease of acceptance that we address and making sure our price is commensurate with the value that we deliver um, were two things that really made a difference in terms of more universal coverage for American Express. So you mentioned price there, and I used to run a small business years ago, and American Express cost us significantly more to accept than Visa or MasterCard. Now, I understand that that you've revisited your price specifically, though. Can you comment on how you how the gap has narrowed between you and the other major networks? Yes, and not sure how long ago, Matt, you're talking about with the price, because before, frankly, American Express did have a premium as it relates to price. That said, over the last 10 years, our price has been going down, while uh, other networks' price have been going up to where we are now. On average, the price between us and other networks are pretty commensurate. They're close, uh, comparable, rather. And so that is really, so we, that's where we are now. We did that by addressing, again, the value we're delivering to a particular merchant the value within a particular industry. Our price now, we go out and price uh, uh, for merchants all the time on an aggregate, but also on an individual level. And again, where we've seen that price is not, um, a high price is not warranted, that's not where we would price that way. We focus uh, a large part of our pricing is on the profitability that we deliver to that merchant based on the customer's that visit that particular establishment. And as you know, American Express has the more affluent customers and the way that manifests itself for a merchant, if you, uh, a person has an American Express card, they spend three times more than that you would if you had a, another card. You transact at that particular establishment 1.7 times more. So we're really trying to make sure that the price that we charge a merchant is, is warranted by the types of card members that come in. And again, I just described the demographics of the American Express card member. Okay, well, American Express, over the past decade or so, I think it's fair to say that has become kind of a more broad spectrum of credit card products, like not just focused on the premium customers. Um, I th- do you have uh, like prepaid credit cards, prepaid cards, you yes. have kind of lower end, like the no annual fee credit cards, things like that? That's correct. So, yeah. But the focus is still like your flagship products are still the the high end, you know, like the platinum card and things like that. So do you still see American Express's focus to be on higher end credit cards or do you see kind of it becoming a, you know, a more broad based credit card business over the years? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, we really the value for uh, our customer hasn't changed in terms of the targeting that we go uh, after we believe in, and we continue to believe in card member options. So, Matt, we have in the U.S. over 30 different products, from no fee to fees, that we have available for prospective card members and existing card members uh, to to choose from. Um, it really is. We we think about the products when we're doing the construct is. What is the card member looking for? Some, as you know, would they, they have an aversion to fees, so we have no-fee products. And real rewards aren't that important to them. Others, we have products for people who are focused on travel. They have different aspirations, whether it's I'm a big person. I like to dine. I like to travel. I like different lounge experience when I'm traveling. And so we make sure that the products that we put in the marketplace 
is consistent with what the demand we see, but also that we um, are focusing and targeting certain uh, customers. That has resulted in a broadened card member base, and the fastest-growing demographics for American Express are millennials. Millennials right now, over the last two, three years, have been our fastest-growing segment, and that's frankly because of the benefits and the value that we've embed in different uh, cards. So that's definitely very interesting. Um, so in general, the financial industry, the fees and financial services have gone down in the past decade or so. Um, first of all, has this ha- has this been the case in the credit card industry overall? You mentioned that American Express is definitely more comparable with Visa and MasterCard. Has the overall trend been downward? And do you see kind of the credit card business being pressured, I guess, if you will, by the the anti-fee nature of the financial service business? Yeah. Um, so the pressure always is going to be on uh, downward pressure on price. But again, what I'll go back to is we made uh, and continue to make a conscious effort to match, have our price match the value that we deliver. And I go back to match the profitability that we deliver to that particular merchant. Again, we think about, uh, in its most simplest form, which industry uh, this merchant is in, how much spend, card member spend from American Express is there, and then really making sure that it's understood that to the merchant that is actually a good thing to accept American Express because of the type of card member that we deliver there. We And we also have insights, we have data that we can find because of our integrated system, meaning we have relationships, closed relationships with merchants, closed relationships with card members, where we're able to give certain insight. Just recently, last week, I had a discussion with um, a well-known national retailer where, of course, price came up as part of a discussion, and we were able to walk through the, 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 the data. And this, by the way, was a, the president of a company as well as the CFO. We were able to walk through the data and explain to those two individuals, this is why you want to accept American Express. This is why we charge what we charge. And frankly, they were surprised by the profitability of an American Express card member uh, vis-a-vis other competitors, uh, other networks. And that really resulted in them, frankly, asking for more card members and how can we help them from a marketing perspective and leveraging our channels to increase same store sales uh, for them. And so that's how the conversation typically uh, ends. And again, because we have unique data and insights, we can give them information that tells them here are our card members that spend with you. Here are card members that spend with some of your competitors. Here are card members that actually spend, they're more loyal with you or they're more loyal to your competitor. And how do we drive more store sales to you based on the insights that we have, the marketing we can do, and the joint efforts of offers, et cetera, that we can deliver to our card members? So in other words, as long as you continue to come up with innovative ways to create value for your customers, you don't really see your pricing coming under pressure that much as long as you're delivering a acceptable value for it. Yeah, well, I would say I would think that's too easy to say we don't see the pressure of price. Price continues to be a pressure, as you sure. understand, dependent upon the margins. But what we do is we get ahead of that. We stay, I would say, in an anticipatory mode of thinking, how can we continue to justify and re-justify the price that we charge, 
and continue, frankly, to educate and work with our merchants so they have an understanding of the price value equation that we have. Because frankly, once that profitability is understood, typically there is less concern about the price and there's not a focus on the few basis points that we may be, may be more expensive. Again, I've told you that on average we're comparable to other networks, but where we are, have a differential and it's a premium, they understand that, boy, this is so worth it. Again, given the demographics and given the card members and given the insight that American Express delivers versus other networks. All right. Well, so one of the things I found that was really interesting when I was doing research for this interview was that it costs the merchant about one-third of the amount to accept a debit card as it does a credit card on average. Can you mm-hmm. help our listeners understand why that is? Is it uh, the value you create? Is it is it just more of a process to process a credit card transaction versus a debit card transaction? Can you enlighten us on that? Yes. So that is correct uh, observation that debit cards are less expensive for merchants than um, uh, other cards. But that is really a function of the kind of base um, benefits that you get. You get no benefits, actually, uh, with the debit card versus the benefits that are embedded in other credit cards and other card products. And so that trend, in a big part, that is what drives the differential in, in price. The other thing is that from a processing that transaction, a debit card is directly linked to the bank. So the processing of the transaction is easier, where a credit card, it goes through uh, more iterations. Uh, and that would be with the difference. That's primarily what drives the difference in the uh, fee for debit versus a credit card. Okay. And just one last thing before we let you go. Um, a lot of our podcast listeners are avid readers. We do that. We definitely do ep- episodes every so often just on the best books to read for personal finance and investing and everything. Can you uh, recommend one of your personal favorites before we let you go? Well, I don't have a, a personal finance one, but I'm, I'm just about finished a book that I'm, I'm reading now. Uh, Eternal Life is uh, by a, uh, author Dara Horn, and it really is about uh, a woman, quickly, who lived to be 2,000 years old, and just how would your paradigm change if you can live kind of forever, 2,000 years, versus the paradigm that we have that life is finite. And it just show, it talks about the options that you would make that's different versus, again, if there wasn't a finite date that you saw versus you had a, a longevity of thousands of years. And so it just really, really focuses you on how do you live life in, in today and in the moment and extract the most uh, from it. So that's what I would encourage your readers to at least uh, kind of look up. Again, Eternal Life by uh, Dara Horn. That actually sounds fascinating, and I'm probably going to order that as soon as we get out of the studio. Um, <laughs> Gunther, thank you so much for taking the time and explaining what's new at American Express and where how the business is going and how some of the inner workings of the credit card business work. was my absolute pleasure, Matt. Be well. Before we continue, we want to say thanks to Molecule for sponsoring this episode of Industry Focus. Molecule is the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. In fact, Molecule's technology has been personally effective and verified by science. But most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. Molecule destroys air pollutants 
on a molecular level with technology that's been developed for over 20 years by the director of the Clean Energy Research Center at the University of South Florida. Molecule's patented dual filtration system and proprietary photoelectrochemical oxidation can break down a pollutant to its basic harmless components. Molecule is easy to use. It has a clean and sleek design from the materials used on the device, like its sleek, solid aluminum shell, to a filter subscription service where filters regularly arrive on your doorstep when you need them, just like magic. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And enter the promo code FOOL75. That's Molecule, spelled M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com and enter promo code FOOL75. And now, as it's just stepping out from the interview himself, I'm, I'm welcoming uh, into our studio via Skype certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, nice interview you had there with Gunther. Thank you. I learned a lot. Hopefully, the listeners did as well. I think they probably did. The technical term for what you did there, Matt, is you hit them with the hind. You hit them with the <laughs> hind. You did a great job. Good job, buddy. Um, okay, we're going to get into some earnings here today. We've got uh, earnings palooza really kicking in full gear. We've got Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Travelers on our radar today. Uh, Matt, tell our listeners uh, the two-minute drill for Bank of America's earnings, the good, the bad, the ugly, and what they need to be caring about. Well, Bank of America, like most of the other banks, beat earnings estimates. That's not really out of the ordinary. Most banks have been beating earnings estimates, especially since since tax reform was passed last year. But in addition to that, there's the, we saw all the right numbers. Um, interest margins expanded, as would be expected with rising interest rates. So Bank of America's profits are getting better. Efficiency has gotten a lot better. Their efficiency ratio dropped from 60% to 57 over the past year, which 57% is really good for a big brick-and-mortar bank. Yeah, um, That puts them definitely in the elite category. Um, in addition to that, they're buying back stock aggressively like most other big banks are. Um, they bought back more than 2% of their outstanding shares in the first quarter alone, which normally when companies do a buyback, you know, 2% is a good rate for like the whole year. And they did it in the first quarter. So that's definitely a, a big positive. And they're doing really good um, embracing technology and just building up their mobile users, which is a big cost saver. Had a lot to do with that efficiency ratio. Um, Mobile bank, mobile banking users rose nine percent year over year, and this keeps going up and up and up, and it's going to make them very competitive if it keeps going. Yeah, and a reminder for listeners that efficiency ratio, which is uh, one that is is a key metric to focus on with the banking industry, um, it it tells us how the bank is managing its expenses. So the the lower the number, the better, right? Right. Um, so that means they're spending. 57 cents to generate every dollar in revenue, essentially, is what that means. All right. Makes sense. Uh, okay. What about Morgan Stanley, another big bank out there? What what'd you see with their recent report? Well, that's another one that beat on the... They beat, actually, on both the top and bottom lines. Um, Morgan Stanley's numbers just looked really good throughout the business, even compared with some of their competitors. Um, they actually beat expectations for trading revenue, which was a big problem in, say, Goldman Sachs earnings report. Um, investment banking revenue dropped, but you know did as well as expected. Um, the big reason for investment banking drop, and this is kind of a key point for investors in Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs to know, um, 
mergers, merger and acquisitions and IPOs have kind of been in a lull lately. Um, in the first quarter, IPO activity was very low. Now, as the second quarter starts, you're seeing like a wave of IPOs. We just saw Lyft a little while ago, Pinterest, Zoom, Uber's coming up. So don't read too much into the fact that investment banking revenue really plummeted during the first quarter. There was a reason for it, but it's looking like a temporary reason, and it looks like IPOs are going to be kind of the the buzzword for the rest of 2019. So it could be a big catalyst for those two banks. Okay, so I mean, looks like a pretty decent um, start to the year for a lot of the banks that we are covering. Going a little bit, uh, you know, across the aisle here into the insurance business, uh, Travelers, which is one that I had as my one to watch last week, um, I believe. Uh, reported and you know I, I feel like if you're a traveler's shareholder then you need to feel really good about the fact that you own these shares I mean it just continues to be a very well managed business that is not trying to overreach um, it's not trying to grow too quickly by writing bad business I mean we still see net premiums were up three percent uh, it's a good indicator that they're growing but it's it's controlled growth uh, strong underwriting gains reflecting that smart decision making and, and the underlying combined ratio for the business um, was 91.6% versus 92.4% a year ago. And we talk about ratios for banks. Well, for insurance, that combined ratio is an important one because it tells us essentially how well they're writing that book. The lower the number, the better. Um, anything over 100 tells us basically that they're losing money on the business that they're writing. Um, and it, it's worth noting that the underlying combined ratio that they refer to, the underlying means that that excludes the impacts of catastrophes, which Catastrophes can make the insurance business a little lumpy, and the underlying just gives us a little bit more of an idea of kind of how things are going on a quarter-to-quarter on quarter basis. Um, but, but regardless, I think it was a good quarter. The stock trades around one and a half times book value today, which you know I, I, I like this company a lot. I think it's a great holding for folks out there wanting to get insurance into their portfolio. I don't think I'd be buying it at today's valuation simply because of the valuation. Um, but I imagine that we'll find a time here sooner or later where that stock will pull back, either due to general market conditions or perhaps. Um, you know, there's there's some some events out there that that play out on their on their uh, their book that that perhaps bring bring the uh, the stock price back a little bit, but um, definitely one worth keeping on on the watch list. There, it's good enough for Berkshire, Matt. We talked about that before, right? <laughs> yeah, anything good enough for Uncle Warren's good enough for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at the right price, that is. That's at the right, right price. at the right price. Good, good, good addendum there. Um, I want to ta- <laughs> tap into Twitter here real quick. Just had a couple of. Uh, Tweets that I wanted to note here from at one shot Stevie. Uh, one shot Stevie asks, "How do I ask a question for the Motley Fool podcast? I'm very interested to hear an updated opinion on Yushin. Thanks." And that's ticker UXIN. I'm sure I probably botched the pronunciation of that company, um, but that is, I believe, the the Chinese. It's a used car business in China, the Chinese used car platform. And uh, one shot Stevie, I am happy to to tell you that next Tuesday. Um, I will be hosting the industry-focused consumer goods show, and I have uh, managed to uh, talk Emily Flippin, one of our, our uh, analysts here on the investing team, to come in and do the show with us, and she's going to give us an update on Yushin. So, uh, you know, look forward to that soon. 
um, and hopefully she'll be able to give you a good updated take on on the state of the business. Uh, I know there was a recent short report out there, um, so so she'll she'll have a couple of things to say about that, I'm sure. Um, and then we also had a tweet from at the underscore Chantilly fr, and this was just a nice shout out. Honestly, he says his favorite business podcasts, and he he goes on to list a few podcasts there, but at the top of his list are Market Foolery, Industry Focus, Motley Fool Money. Um, I mean, wow! You know, those are just some really kind words there, and really appreciate uh, the the nice words there from uh, at the underscore Chantilly fr. Uh, now, Matt, let's jump into an uh, an email that we got a little while back from a listener. Chip Hockenberry uh, wrote to us. He says, "I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the wealth management sector. 2018 was a very down year for the industry. There's been a lot of movement into passive funds in recent years, which may be catching up to these predominantly active managers. But BlackRock is a leader in the passive space and was still down significantly. Another interesting piece has been the uh, the acquisitive nature of all of these firms that don't seem." to be paying dues in the stock price. Uh, Matt, we talked a little bit about this on Slack before the show. What, what, do you, what, what do you make of this for Chip? Well, for the wealth management stocks, there's three points you need to know when it comes to why they performed so poorly last year and just kind of general business dynamics going forward. First, these businesses primarily make money off management fees. If their assets under management decline, whether by people pulling money out or by just overall market declines, as we saw last year, it's going to cause profits to suffer. In BlackRock's BlackRock's case, for example, um, assets under management wound up declining 5% during the fourth quarter just because of poor market performance. And as a result, revenues declined by 9%. So that would cause BlackRock to take a big hit, even though you're talking the passive game. That's number two, is a lot of investors, the trend is moving from active investments to passive investments. A lot of firms offer both types of investments. So even if assets under management remain equal, a lot more is going to passive investments, which usually carries much lower management fees. So that could be a big revenue hit as well. And then third, there's just a big trend in the industry toward lower fees in general. People don't want to pay more than 1% for an actively managed mutual fund. People think that index funds should cost next to nothing. And as each of these firms are competing with each other, both in the active game and passive game, you're seeing a lot of pricing pressure because there's, you know, Fidelity is offering some pretty much free index funds. There's... um, you can get a great Vanguard or Schwab fund that pay that charges 003 or 0.04% of assets under management, which is almost nothing. So there's a lot of pricing pressure in the industry right now, which is not only act actually, you know, being reflected in the numbers right now, but is causing investors to be kind of worried about the earning power of these companies going forward. So when you're looking at these stocks, I would say those three things are what you want to look at. All right, good stuff. I hope that was uh, helpful for you, Chip. I know it was helpful for me. Um, and, and thanks, Chip, for the email. Uh, really do appreciate that. And um, folks, you know, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus whenever you have any questions. Um, we're more than happy to take them for you. Try to bring them on the show whenever we can. Um, and with that in mind, Matt, let's go ahead and wrap it up this week here with our ones to watch. What's on your radar this coming week? Um, being that I'm a real estate guy at heart, I'm going to mention one of my uh, real estate investment trusts or REITs, uh, Tanger Outlets. If you're an outlet shopper, you've probably heard of the company. 
Um, retail REITs continue to be under pressure just because of general you know, headwinds in the sector. Interest rates have ticked up a little bit recently, which has put pressure on all REITs. Tanger is actually at a 52-week low, despite the fact that it's, in my opinion, one of the best ways to play retail. Right now, the stock pays about 7.5%, so you're getting paid very nicely while you wait for you know, the, the sector issues to, to play out. So that's what I'm watching, especially at these prices. I might jump in and buy a little bit more. I already own a lot of it. You know. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little unconventional this week with Chipotle. Um, I mean, the stock itself is up somewhere in the neighborhood of 65% for the year. So it's been on fire for good reason. I think CEO Brian Nichols has certainly taken this business in a new direction, uh, one that's resonating with consumers and investors. But earnings come out on Wednesday, uh, the 24th. And the main reason why I'm focused on it is because we see a lot more. Um, we see a lot more in the mobile experience, and therefore the mobile payments that are going through their app as they're as they're you know building this business really for the mobile consumer and the to go consumer. Um, last quarter, digital sales grew sixty five point six percent, accounted for almost thirteen percent of sales. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how those numbers are shaping up here. Um, and again, you know they've made it so easy in the app to order. Uh, and, and you have a number of different ways that you can pay now on those apps, Apple Pay or your credit card that you have loaded in the in the app. There, um, it really does seem like new leadership uh, here at Chipotle has has lit a little bit of a fire under the business, got things going in the right direction. So I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, Matt, hey, listen, I guess that's going to wrap it up for us this week. But uh, you've got another uh, interview on tap for us next week, right? Yes, we'll be speaking with uh, the Marcus by Goldman Sachs team in honor of Financial Literacy Month, which is April. All right, well, that sounds good, Matt. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Then, thanks again for uh, for joining us this week, as as always. Yeah, it's always fun to be here. Hopefully, I'll get back up to the studio soon. Soon enough. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan Boyd. For Matt Frankel and Gunther Bright, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.